Um, one of the blessings of this time of year is that a lot of our students who are away at school are back, and I have invited uh, Andrea Marslin, who's back from school, to do our reading this morning. It is Matthew 2, verses 1 to 18. So, Andrew, you can come on up. Hello? Yeah. So this is in, also in your bulletin if you want to follow along and see all the mistakes I make as I read this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born, the King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen went with it and rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was fulfilled through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. On November 7th, uh, Canada lost a pretty legendary singer-songwriter, Leonard Cohen. I don't know if there's any Leonard Cohen fans in here. Hands high, Leonard Cohen, yeah. Okay, more than maybe I thought. That's excellent. I was introduced to Leonard Cohen in my early 20s at the Institute for Christian Studies. I had some professors who were really uh, big on Cohen and his ability to kind of articulate the 
um, kind of the texture of the culture and, and really kind of stood in as, as a kind of a, a poet, uh, poet prophet in a lot of ways. Probably most, his most famous song is Hallelujah. And, uh, you know, it's got a great line or series of lines in, um, in one of the stanzas. He talks about how it's not a cry that you hear at night. This isn't someone who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. And our church has been learning about Christmas and its implications, the incarnation of Jesus, and what, how that changes how we live uh, for a number of weeks now. And I decided to call this series a th- The Thrill of Hope because I, I really do believe that Christmas is a game changer on many levels. When we understand what is happening in the Christmas story, you, there's kind of no going back. However, I know that for a lot of people, the holiday season is a time of tremendous pain. It's a, it's a time of really acute sadness. Strained relationships and loneliness, depression, grief, those can all get magnified this time of year. And on top of that, our community has experienced uh, the tragic loss of two young lives recently. And so Mary and Bright are probably not adjectives that a lot of people are connecting to this Christmas. I want to just list some of the shadows that hang over many Christmases, not just out there in the community, but over our lives in this church as well. For some people, this is your first Christmas without a loved one, after a particularly painful bereavement. For some people, this is the first Christmas since a divorce or a breakup. For some people, they find themselves in a state of unemployment and all the anxiety and disorientation that that causes. Some of us are moving into Christmas, and from the outside, things look really good, but we know that we're struggling within our marriage or in a key relationship within our family, and that has, that, that's not enabling us to just move into Christmas joyfully. That is kind of the elephant in the room. Some of us maybe are just really stressful and tired. Maybe it hasn't been one major thing. It's been a series of uh, small things, kind of death by a thousand pinpricks, this slow successive layering of burdens. And we now come into the holidays exhausted, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, and we can't even put our finger on exactly what, what, all the, what the causation of all of that is. We just know how we feel. And we feel apathetic, and we feel dry, and we feel just kind of uh, definitely not anticipatory about Christmas. Some of us are struggling with depression, with the dark, long nights, Some of us, because of what we've gone through, we move into Christmas, and while it looks like all around us, and we're singing songs to Jesus, and we look around church, and people seem generally upbeat, and they're wearing colorful clothes, we're struggling in our faith. Maybe a question has arisen, a doubt has taken root, things have happened, that now we're really struggling in our relationship with God in some way. Maybe you have a lack of direction or purpose. There's a real... Maybe this year more than others, you have a really keen sense of, I'm not really sure what I'm living for. I I don't have a kind of gravitational center. And I feel like I should, and I don't. And that is bringing a kind of anxiety and stress and instability. 
Maybe it's another Christmas being single. Maybe you're someone who doesn't even really consider yourself to be that religious, but here you are on Sunday or you're, you're listening via our podcast and just things don't seem right. And you can't just pretend like things are okay. You can't just psych yourself up with the presents and the gifts and the tinsel and the lights. It's just not working this year. And you're trying to figure out why. You're trying to understand why. You're trying to kind of do that reflective, introspective work to say, why, why can I not just do Christmas like I have every other year? Why isn't it working? Why do I feel like something's off and something's wrong? If you find yourself in one or maybe several of these situations this year, then I, this is a message that is for you. I want you to hear this morning that Christmas is for you, and, and in a lot of ways especially for you if you're walking in darkness. Because if Christmas tells us anything, it's the truth that Leonard Cohen really beautifully articulated in his song Anthem. Ring the bells that still will ring and forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. There's a crack in, in everything, in all of us. No one's walking, everyone's walking wounded towards Christmas. But the good news is that God takes those cracks, those pieces of brokenness, and that's how he gets in. That's how he does some of his most important work. And so I want to talk today about how Christmas really is good news for those of you who are brokenhearted. It's really good news for those of you who are world-weary and are limping forward and wondering, is this all there is? So those are the shadows that hang over some of our Christmases. And I want to parallel those, and I want to help you to see and encourage you by the fact that in the first Christmas, there were tremendous shadows hanging over the people of the time, really on three levels. Uh, There was kind of global darkness, there was national darkness, and there was personal darkness. We read about all those in the Christmas story. Now, amidst the tinsel and 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 again, the lights and the celebration and the parties, we can sometimes forget that that first Christmas, God's, you know, um, the word becoming flesh, light piercing the darkness, that that was a place of deep darkness. That wasn't a place where everyone was merry and bright. And that's important for us to be reminded of probably every Christmas season. First of all, you have global darkness. In Luke chapter 2, Luke opens his second chapter by saying, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That's a loaded statement. Caesar Augustus, he's the imperial ruler, the known world globally ruled by Caesar Augustus, the one who on epithets and, and, um, and coinage and signage is declared as Lord and Savior, the Caesar who brings the Pax Romana, he brings peace to the world, and yet most people living under the rule of Rome recognize that as just uh, utter propaganda. There's no peace in Rome. Any peace that's brought is brought by the tip of the spear, by bloodshed, by crucifixion, by bullying. So there's global darkness where the world seems to be ruled by an imperial, pagan, ruthless power. There's a census that should be taken. 
Why are they doing a census? Well, they want to get all the headcounts right so they can tax properly. Very high taxation in the first century. A lot of revolts because of the amount of taxation. Upwards of, well, for, certainly for Jewish people, when, once you count tithes, offerings, Roman imperial taxes, you're getting upwards, I've heard, anywhere from between high 60s to high 70s percent of taxation. Really, really economically exploitive and oppressive. So you have this overarching sense of global dread. Maybe some of us feel that with the news out of Aleppo, some of these places in the world. We, we, we're, the internet, for good or for ill, has made us more attuned to global darkness. We can't just live secluded in our little bubble in our part of the world and think, yeah, things are pretty good. There's also national darkness. Andrea read it, Matthew 2.1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. King Herod is a puppet ruler under Caesar Augustus. He's called Herod the Great. We learned about him last year, not because he was great in character, but because he was great in terms of his ambition and his ego in a lot of ways. But he was very ruthless. He was a tremendous tyrant. He was a dictator. He was very vicious. He killed several of his own sons on suspicion that they were trying to usurp him out of his throne. Roman historian Josephus said, it's actually better to be Herod's sow than his son. You're safer as his pig than you are as a family member. Another historian said, Herod the Great, while Herod the, while Herod the Great ruled, no woman's virtue was safe, nor, man's, nor any man's life. Herod was a vicious tyrant, and yet he was installed as the king of the Jews. It was a way of throwing a bone to the Jewish people who had revolted uh, during the Maccabean Revolution a few centuries earlier. And it was a way for Rome to say, okay, we'll kind of recognize you as a nation. You have no power. We'll give you a king, and they install this King Herod, but he's not a godly person at all. He simply uses the religious system and pulls the levers. So there was this great sense from God's people of, as a nation, God, you, you've, you've given us promises. We're, we're supposed to be a light to the nations. How, how can we be a light? We're, we're ruled by Romans, and even the king that we have is vicious and ungodly and unrighteous and unjust. This isn't right. How long, O oh Lord? What, how long do we have to labor and, and, and toil under this kind of oppressive darkness? There, there were creeping thoughts of does the installation of Caesar and then Herod, does that, is that some kind of an omen? Does that mean that God has abandoned us? Have we exhausted God's mercy? Does God really care? It's been 400 years since God has sent a prophet. 400 years of silence. Is that going to keep stretching out indefinitely into the future? And then you have the, the personal darkness that everybody that we're introduced to in the Christmas story has to wrestle through. And they're all navigating a different kind of darkness. You have Mary and Joseph who are trying to figure out what to do with the public disgrace of finding out that Mary's pregnant outside of marriage. They know the reasons why, but no one else is going to believe them. And Joseph, we're told, is even wrestling with it and decides, well, maybe I should divorce her because that will be the least uh, disgraceful way of, the most honoring way to try not disgrace her. And then, of course, he has a visitation from the angel, but then they have to get, then he marries her. And then there's still that sense of, what, what do we do with this? Our imaginations probably aren't, a, um, aren't broad enough to, to recognize how much of a social stigma that would have been. We see that as honorable, but in a first century context, to have a woman who's 
a, j- a godly Jewish woman pregnant out of wedlock and then a godly Jewish man marry her for whatever reason, that is a very scandalous thing. On, in Matthew 2, we find them on the run because Herod sees this threat to his throne. A new king of the Jews has been born. I am the king of the Jews. I don't want to give up my power. I'm Herod the Great. Do you know who I am? So he is you know, sending this call out to have all these innocents slaughtered, Mary and Joseph, refugees on the run. You have Zacharias and Elizabeth who were introduced to at one point in the Christmas story. These are, this is a couple who become the parents of John the Baptist, but when we meet them, they're childless, they're old, um, which weighed on their hearts. Elizabeth talks about how God has taken away her reproach when they find out that they will conceive a son and name him John. But when we meet, when we meet them in the Christmas story, they're, they're childless, which means in a first century context, they have no legacy. They're washed up. Their best days are behind them. They don't see how God can do anything in their darkness. You have the shepherds who get a visitation. The shepherds we would call today undereducated individuals who have no prospects for upward mobility. They're kind of economically stuck. They're maybe not looked down upon, but certainly not seen as any kind of a respectful profession. It's janitorial work. You have Simeon, who's waited decades for the consolation of Israel, meaning Israel's Messiah, Israel's Redeemer to come, one decade, two decades, three decades. I don't know if you've ever had to wait for something that long. I don't know if you know what that feels like to wait for what seems like an eternity. I'm going to see Rogue One this afternoon. That has felt like a long time (laughs) between last year's Star Wars movie and this year's Star Wars movie. That has been a long time. And it's finally on the doorstep. Here's someone who had to wait decades for what his heart most desired. And we see him in the Christmas story. We discover him still in that process of waiting. Unfulfilled expectations. Anna, who we're told gets married, but then becomes a widow after seven years and probably spends somewhere between 50 to 60 years as a widow. Shattered dreams of what could have been her life, spends day and night at the temple praying, has poured out her life to God. And then all the mothers and fathers who lose their son as a result of Herod's decree, his vicious, unjust, tyrannical decree, weeping and wailing, heard in Ramah, which is a city quite a distance from Bethlehem which is the Bible's way of saying Herod just drew, kind of drew a big circle and say, anybody you find here, any, any boy to and under, kill them. I'm not taking any chances. No threat to my throne. Don't ask questions. To and under, done. Weeping and wailing. And so understanding this, you can see why the prophet Isaiah, looking forward to the Christmas event in Isaiah 2, he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The context of the first Christmas story is deep darkness. So while we might, in our cultural context, if we're walking through darkness, feel like, oh, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, and I don't know, everyone wants to be jolly and bright, and this is great. and We can, we can make ourselves feel like the outcast because we're not fitting the narrative of the bright and cheery Christmas we're actually in a better position 
to hear and to experience the love of God and the grace of God in the Christmas story. Because that is the narrative of the Christmas story. Deep darkness. People walking in the shadow of global darkness and national darkness and all kinds of personal darkness. So if you're here this morning, if you're listening and you're saying, I am walking through that kind of darkness, I want you to know you are primed to hear and receive the Christmas story. Christmas offers hope because it declares that God has become one of us. This, this one who's known as Emmanuel, God with us. And not just with us in good times, but especially in Christmas we see God is with us in bad times, in dark times, in depressing times, in times of waiting and unfulfillment, shattered dreams, betrayed expectations. That is where God is with us in a powerful way. So this morning I want to offer some counsel, meager as it might be, to three groups of people. I want to offer some counsel to those of you who are walking in deep darkness this morning. And then I'm going to offer some counsel for those of you who are causing deep darkness this morning. And then I'm going to offer counsel to those of you who are like, honestly, I just feel like things are really good. I, I could fish for stuff, but honestly, I feel like I'm in a really joyous, I am merry and bright, I'm in a good space. All three of us need to hear the implications of this this morning. For those of you who are walking through deep darkness, and, 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 and there's not one thing, I'm going to throw a bunch of stuff against the wall. There's no silver bullet for walking through darkness. And I don't want to convey that there is. There's just one thing, do this, say this, respond in this way, and everything's going to work. Um, so instead what I'm going to do is I kind of made a list of a, a bunch of things that may be helpful to you. So I just want you to listen, be receptive, and if there's one or two things that the Holy Spirit maybe just puts an impression on your heart that you, when you hear it, you're like, that is something that I need to take to heart. I need to run with that this afternoon. Then do it. But I'm going to be kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. Because I know there's a, there's a broad spectrum of darkness here, but I'm trusting that God will just put in front of you the one or two things that, that you need to hear. So the first thing that I would say for those who are walking in deep darkness is very simple but very important, which is turn to God. In the midst of your darkness, turn to God. Timothy Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, says, Christianity says God has been all the places that you have been, and he's been in the darkness that you're in now, and even greater darkness, and therefore you can trust him. You can rely on him because he knows and has the power to comfort, strengthen, and bring you through. Part of the beauty of Christmas, the truth that's hidden in plain sight, is God is working in the darkness. Darkness, In the midst of all these stories where people think, does God care? Has God abandoned us? Is there even a God? God is actually at work. God behind the scenes is doing a work and bringing salvation and hope and grace. Another thing that I would say is turn to God and maybe forgive Some of us are walking in darkness because we, for whatever reason, haven't extended forgiveness towards those who have brought pain into our lives, whether recently or in the deep past. And so we've kind of shackled this darkness to ourselves because we've been unable or unwilling to forgive. Proverbs 17.9 says, The one who forgives an offense fosters friendship. 
but one who dwells on disputes will alienate a friend. So maybe this is a Christmas where you need to say, is there someone or a group of people that I need to forgive? And you really have the power by God's grace to just let go of that darkness. Another thing that seems very counterintuitive for people, but I found it very challenging and helpful when I've been walking through times of deep darkness, is to actually serve and reach out to other people during that time. It's very counterintuitive. Everything in you wants to be served. You want other people to notice you. you want, you're hoping other people will reach out to you. Other people will, will write the letter. Other people will pick up the phone. Other people will text you. But I really encourage you to consider going in the opposite direction of that. Instead of waiting, you take the initiative and serve and reach out. Proverbs 11.25 says, A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will themselves be refreshed. Sometimes God uses these times to teach us how to love people, not from the abundance and overflow of our lives, but he teaches us how to love people out of emptiness and weakness. I've said it a few times, I'll say it again. And this is a quote by Timothy Keller. I think it's brilliant. You know, even when our troubles are great, we should still serve. Jesus washed his disciples' feet on the way to the cross. So if you're in a place of deep darkness, this might be a Christmas challenge to you to say, in these next seven days, in these next 14 or 21 days between the rest of Advent and Christmas, how could I reach out? How could I turn my darkness um, into a redemptive energy to say, I'm going to reach out and try and bring light and hope to someone else. Maybe you need to ask for help. You're walking in deep darkness, you're feeling overwhelmed, and maybe you need to ask for help. Maybe you need to talk to a professional, a counselor, a therapist. Maybe you need to ask for help from a friend, explicitly. Maybe that's hard for you, maybe it's embarrassing for you, but you need to go to someone or write an email or text and say, I think I need to sit down and talk with someone. I just need to get this out or I'm, I'm really struggling with something. Maybe you need to talk to, to me as your pastor. I try not to, I try and clear my schedule a little bit of kind of normal responsibilities this time of year. So please, if you're wanting to connect even over coffee, even if you can't give voice to exactly why you want to connect, you're just like, I think it would be good to connect. Can we talk, Jeff? Can we pray together? I would love to do that. I will prioritize that. That's really, really important to me. Please don't, and whether it's me or whether it's a friend, don't believe the lie that says, oh, they're too busy or they've got other stuff happening and I don't want to bother them. I don't want to be a burden, whatever it is. Reach out, ask for help. Prayer, obviously, critically important. But would I invite you to maybe bring a creative element to that and try and write a prayer, try and give voice in writing to what you're feeling and what you're going through. When you write, you bring a clarity to your thoughts that isn't always there if we just kind of pray and kind of go off the cuff. To really craft out a prayer to God, maybe you refine it over a series of weeks over this time. Maybe you find a psalm to pattern it, pattern it off of, but you really f- flex prayer muscles in a different way reading God's word, memorizing an encouraging verse, section of scripture, commit something to memory in these next seven days before Christmas hits. And lastly, I would say to you, for those walking in deep darkness, remember that there's more to this life 
than just this life. There's more to this life than just this life. And I don't say that to be defeatist. I say that to say, in the light of eternity, where we will be with God in heaven in the life after death, and then in the life after the life after death, new heavens and new earth, and the full redemption of all things, our, mom, our, our troubles, which seem so big now, are going to seem very momentary. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life we Christians have hope, then we're, of all people, most to be pitied. If we think that being a Christian means this life is where I get to experience all the joy and all the fulfillment and, and kind of like the, the full abundance, Paul says, yeah, that's pretty pitiful. We, we should be most pitied. And the inference there is because when you become a Christian, one of the things you're going to realize is that your life becomes a lot harder in a lot of ways. And so if you're thinking that becoming a Christian is going to make you healthy, wealthy, happy now to the full measure, that's, that's probably not going to be the way it pans out. It doesn't mean that we're never happy. We experience lots of blessings of God in this life. But if you're walking in darkness, you need to remember that the darkness that you experience in this light, Paul, Paul says in Romans 8, he says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us one day. 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived. Think about it. Think, stretch your imagination to its utter end of what kind of an amazing future in heaven you could imagine. The Bible says, mind, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Your imagination is insufficient to think and to hold the glory of the future that awaits you. Now, for those of you who are causing darkness, and I want to speak clearly to that, because maybe in ways that we're not even, it's not even on our radar, maybe we are the cause of darkness in someone else's life, in our family, in our marriage, in our community, relationships, I want to say three short things here. If you are causing darkness in someone else's life because of an attitude or a posture, a behavior, words, a disposition, you need to apologize. The, the big biblical word for that is confession. But confession just means apology. Apologizing to God and apologizing directly to that person. You need to own up to the fact that however right you feel and justified you feel in either passive-aggressively or not so passive-aggressively bringing darkness and pain into someone else's life, it's wrong. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It doesn't say forgiven. That's presumed. You apologize to God the other person, of course, forgiveness, but it's, there's also healing that happens. Confession, apology, owning up to our own junk and naming that, you know, I really am being really selfish here is really, really important. It demands that we bury our pride, but it's critical for our healing. 
And, not, and don't just leave it at apologizing. Oh, sorry, I did that. Whoops. Like really confess and then change your ways. The Bible says that's repent. But repent just means turn around. You're going down this path and you said this path is wrong. That's confession. Now I'm going to turn around and go down God's path. I'm going to go down the right way. What does it look like for you to do that? Proverbs 28 says, whoever conceals their sin doesn't prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces their sin turns away from it, not just, oh, sorry I did that, but I pretty much intend to just keep doing it and just keep asking for forgiveness. That's not genuine, I would argue, confession, but certainly not repentance. But where do you need to change directions? Not just feel bad for what you've done, but own it in such a way that you say, what would it look like for me this Christmas season to go in a different direction? Maybe it's in your relationship with your spouse. Maybe it's a a family member. Maybe it's a son or daughter. Maybe it's towards your parents. What does it look like for you to confess and to repent? And then, as part of that, to reconcile, to extend an olive branch, to try and build the relationship and bring it to a place of strength. What would that look like for you to do that? For those who are causing darkness, it's important for you to apologize, it's important for you to repent and to change your ways and to work on reconciliation. Romans 12, 18 says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. You might not be able to live at peace, but as far as it depends on you, you do the work that you can do so that that's, that has the greatest possibility of playing out. And lastly, for those of you who this morning came here and honestly, you are, you're moving into Christmas with a sense of abundance. You have relational abundance and maybe economic abundance and there, there really isn't darkness. Things are merry and bright and I don't want you to feel guilty about that. That is awesome. Give thanks for that. Pray that we all have Christmas seasons like that. But I have something to say to you too. And that is give thanks to God for that and recognize how rare that is for a lot of people at Christmas. Give thanks for that. And then also reach out. When we are in a place of abundance, it's never simply so that we can kind of bask in the the benefits of all that surplus. Surplus of good relationships, surplus of good rest, surplus of good harmony, the surplus of shalom. It's not for us simply to bask in. It's for us to say, wow, what an amazing season God has brought me into. Praise God. How could I reach out and extend some of this shalom, share some of this shalom with people who I know are struggling? And that might be, some, that might be something very, very small. Romans twelve thirteen says, share with the Lord's people who are in need And that has economic inference, but it has lots of inference. Share with the Lord's people who are in relational need and psychological need and spiritual need. Those are needs too. And if we're in a place of abundance, that's great. But instead of saying, oh, that's great, I get to be happy. Say, wonderful, I get to be happy. And how do I leverage that? Remember we talked about last week, power? True power goes down in order to lift other people up. If I have a place of abundance... How can I use that privilege and that power to go down to serve someone else to bring them up as well? Romans 12, 13, same verse, share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Being with people, inviting someone over for a Christmas dinner, 
Inviting someone over for a coffee over the holidays. Checking in with someone and saying, hey, can I pop by? Those are small things that mean a lot to people who are walking in deep darkness. You don't have to offer solutions to people who are walking through deep darkness. Often we can't, but we can often... We can offer our presence, we can offer compassion, we can offer a listening ear, we can offer prayer, we can offer an embrace, holding hands together and saying, I'm with you in this, God is with you in this, I want to walk through this with you. What would it look like for you if you're in a good space to use that abundance, as Romans 12:15 says, to, to mourn with those who mourn, to leverage the abundance that you have so that other people known to you, friends, family, people in the community, people within this church, people sitting in the pews, beside you so they can be lifted up. They can have a moment of encouragement and hope. And lastly, I want to end with a call for all of us. All of us. It doesn't matter whether we're walking in deep darkness, whether we're causing darkness, or whether we're in a great space and we're excited about these next few weeks unfolding. The Christmas call that pulls all of us forward is to fix our eyes on Jesus. That is the Christmas call to all of us. 2 Corinthians 4 says, Therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, not on the darkness, that, is, that stands stage front and seems to be the most real thing, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This Emmanuel, this God with us, not just in the good times, but especially and powerfully in times of darkness, reveals that this darkness is temporary the light that has come into the world is the light of men and the darkness was not able to overcome it. And so the gospel is that this child, this Jesus, is given amidst great darkness so that you could know the light of life. And this child is given so that you could have an eternal life by believing in his name. And this child was given so that you could know that you never walk alone even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And this child is given so that you could know that even broken hallelujahs can be mended when they're sung to him. Let's pray. This morning, we sung to you, Jesus, and we sing again. And there are hearts here that are singing that are in deep darkness, and there are hearts here that are singing, that are recognizing that they're causing darkness and they're wanting to turn away from that, and there are hearts that are singing that are full of joy and hope and peace and love. And as we sing together, God, would you meet us here? Would you minister through us, to us by your spirit, through your word? We love you, God. Would you prepare us for these final few days as we move towards the Christmas season? In Jesus' name, amen.